Welcome to the Age of Adoption podcast, the podcast where we ask our esteemed guests one simple question. What is your age of climate adoption story? Today, we welcome Dr. Eric Choi Pena, Vice President of the Center for Global Health at Northwell Health and an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine. Back with Dr. Choi Pena in the time it takes me to regret eating that unnecessary final portion of turkey, stuffing, and gravy. Dr. Eric Choi Pena, welcome to the Age of Adoption podcast. Thanks, Keith. Good to be here. Uh, Eric, as we'll call you today, or Dr. Eric, uh, you have a distinguished background, uh, medical background and research background and teaching background. Uh, currently, uh, as vice president of uh, the Center for Global Health at Northwell Health, uh, would love if you could share your professional background, please, uh, with our listeners. Once again, thank you for having me. Um, I'm Eric Choi Pena. I'm an emergency physician by training, um, and I've been in practice for uh, over 13 years. And I am also um, the vice president of global health and founded the Center for Global Health at Northwell Health. All of my work really focuses around, uh, you know, my work in medicine and global health around building sustainable um, global health programming, conducting education both internationally and domestically with our domestic residents, students and fellows on global health and, uh, and really building, um, you know, the next generation healthcare system. Um, for uh, our partner countries in, in partnership with our partner countries. Great. I know you've done some extensive traveling over the years as a volunteer and, and uh, maybe share some of those stories with us if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. I, um, yeah, so I've, I've worked in um, a couple different countries. Uh, most recently, I've been working a lot in Guyana, Ecuador, um, the Ukraine, and um, India, southern India, Tamil Nadu State in India. I actually just got back from Ukraine uh, several days ago. I had a site visit there um, and uh, looking at expanding programming there. And I'm heading to Guyana uh, in December to kind of see all of our programs that are going on there and and uh, kind of reaffirm our commitments to our partners. Part of our part of our strategy in global health is a sustainable strategy in that um, you know we really our minimum commitment to a partner organization is about five years, um, and we do that to make sure that we have a kind of long-standing programming and that we're not we're not in it for a short short period of time. You know, just just providing humanitarian relief or just solving one quick problem is really a kind of a longer walk than that for the Center for Global Health. Fantastic. And you know, Northwell Health is New York State's largest healthcare provider uh, and private employer, I believe. So that is, uh, I'm sure, an economic driver for the state, but it's also an incredibly powerful platform uh, when it comes to issues around health equity yeah. uh, and sustainability. Uh, as the title of this show suggests, Raising Your Antenna and Age of Adoption, uh, we ask all of our guests to share their age of adoption story Meaning, what is different about your organization now than it may have been 10 years ago? What are the initiatives, programs, uh, vision for how the healthcare industry generally and Northwell specifically can transform to have a be more environmentally sensitive, uh, decarbonize, and overall uh, help the movement to reverse the ill effects of climate change? 
Yeah, I mean, and this is, you know, I can I can certainly speak generally about Northwell strategy and then specifically in global health as we work with some of the partners in the global health that are disproportionately impacted by climate change, some of the strategies that we're adopting with them. Um, but, you know, certainly as a health system and as a large health system, as you said, one of the largest in the Northeast and the largest private employer in the state, you know, there's a lot of opportunities where we look at our supply chain we look at the way that we utilize equipment. Um, you know, medicine has been one of the notorious kind of uh, uh, abusers of disposable products. Um, you know, we, we there are a lot of things in in surgical subspecialties and procedural based medicine where we need sterility, um, and oftentimes there's a cost effective method of of providing that sterility by just using disposable one time use equipment. Um, a lot of those you know pieces of surgical equipment are. Our, our metal, our, our, you know, hard goods. And so to be able to take a scissor and, and use it for a surgery once and then throw it away um, is, uh, is certainly not um, ideal in terms of a sustainability model or, or, um, or even a recycling model. The amount of energy to recycle such products would be really um, uh, wasteful. And so we actually appointed a kind of a chief sustainability officer that's supposed to look at our entire supply chain um, and look at areas where we can be greener. Um, we also have engaged our employees. We have a Greenberg or a business employee resource group that engages our employees. They can join it voluntarily and, and it's uh, to talk about, to, um, to gather ideas and inspiration from um, kind of green initiatives throughout the health system. And it's really, you know, we've gone from, you know, uh, you know, green initiatives and sustainable initiatives being uh, kind of a fringe topic in healthcare to being really central to your corporate social responsibility strategy, um, to how you're going to engage in the world. And, you know, even things that are because of our size are not necessarily by design um, because we are, have such great purchasing power. We can really even take that farther upstream and engage our suppliers and say, you know, this is important to Northwell. Northwell is one of your major customers in the Northeast. You know, what are you doing to make sure that you're part of the solution and not the problem? And so we've seen multiple instances where that coalition building is really important, especially in business where um, where there's where there's enormous purchasing power. So we've we've certainly um, we've certainly tried to use our size and our and our and our sway um, to um, to influence the market in a way that I think is positive. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about that uh, purchasing power. You know, some of the Walmarts of the world and Targets, I mean, they lean uh, heavily into their suppliers uh, to make sure that they're becoming uh, more sustainable businesses, whether it's how they manufacture, whether it's their supply chains, et cetera. So that, that's great to hear that that's, uh, you've been able to make uh, impact there. What about, um, again, uh, because of the amount of physicians, right, that are affiliated with Northwell, I think it's like 18,500. I don't know how many patients that you serve every year, but it's got to be a huge number. Yeah. Uh, is there or are there programs um, that uh, I guess have an impact beyond uh, kind of the bricks and mortars of your facilities, but using that platform, that ability to educate? Um, what's the impact like there? Yeah. So just to really summarize by the numbers. So we see about 2 million unique patients a year um, in our catchment area, 6 million visits. So 6 million uh, patient encounters. Um, so we are big. Um, and and obviously we could we could be bigger. You know, we're in, we're in the New York City metropolitan area. It's a, it's a very population dense environment. There are multiple health systems here. We really view 
kind of one of the major parts of sustainability when it comes to health equity and, and, and health care to be access and getting access to care. And we've seen that through multiple programs that cut across both my programming and global health, which I can get a little bit deeper into in a second. But I wanted to just highlight, you know, during COVID, when there was a surge in patient calls to 911, obviously capacity didn't, inc- it didn't increase at all. We actually piloted a program with the fire department to uh, reroute uh, low, what they perceived as low acuity 911 calls to a tele-emergency medicine service. Um, mm-hmm. And not only were we surprised that um, patients weren't really pissed off when they called thinking they were getting an ambulance and said they got one of our emergency docs, they were actually... Um, we, we exceeded their expectations. They're actually very satisfied with the service. And we've continued to build on that service and to build on our telehealth services to try and meet patients where they are, um, to figure out, you know, when do you actually have to move a patient to the exact site of a doctor? When can the doctor think about that patient uh, remotely and get an equal outcome? And those those are sustainable in many ways, not only just the, you know, the gas or the fuel used to get a you know, vehicle to an appointment, but, but also, you know, uh, if patients have a 30 minute lunch break, they could see their doctor. And that really would be prohibitive if, um, if they had to get in the car and go to the appointment. And, you know, there's all these kind of, kind of downstream effects that having easier access to healthcare spurs, not just the, you know, the downstream of how, how easy it is to get, to get in touch with your doctor or how, how much access you have to healthcare, but also, you know, going to the doctor's you're much more likely to do it earlier on in your disease course. You're much more likely to have a more cost-effective and public health-based kind of preventative solution as, as opposed to kind of, you know, third, you know, tertiary care treatment, which is very expensive. There's a lot of downstreams that that can affect. And I'll give you an example from global health that's, uh, I think, really salient, really kind of merges the two worlds between sustainable environmental uh, influences and, and telehealth. Um, the government of Guyana, um, since we engaged them in 2021, has been working on a problem with their rural areas. So in Guyana, the main population center is along the North Atlantic coast. And the um, the population centers that are smaller, that are deeper into the country, are, are actually surrounded by you know untouched, pristine Amazon rainforest. And there aren't roads connecting those small urban population centers to the capital. And so what's happened traditionally is if a patient needs a medical procedure that's not available in the small regional hospital, they need to get flown out to the capital or they need to get placed on a boat and taken out to the capital. But there are no roads or infrastructure that would connect them over over ground. And so um, as climate change has has kind of you know worsened, um, the amount of rainfall in Guyana has gone up dramatically. Um, the uh, availability of runways and the uh, availability to land fixed-wing aircraft in some of these remote hospitals has gone down dramatically. We've seen it, you know, basically cut in half. And so there's been a wait time for t- patients waiting for transfer out of the regional hospital to the tertiary hospital in, in Georgetown, the capital. Um, and that's come with this morbidity and a mortality. Um, you know, waiting for for care when you have appendicitis or some other surgical emergency is a really big deal. And so what we've done is, you know, obviously, you know, you can you could build a faster boat and that would get you out faster. Some of these boat rides are two days long. You know, so, you know the closest region that we were looking at was seven, a 17 hour boat ride. Um, but, wow. but really, I think the, the solution is, well, what services can you bring to the region and do it in a light manner? Like we're not going to be able to convince a general surgeon to live there. Um, you know, certainly not a Northwell general surgeon and probably not even a Guyanese general surgeon that's not from that community. So unless you're training a surgeon from that community, which has a seven year 
horizon from the graduation of medical school, which is a five or six year process in Guyana. So that's a that's a solution that's now 13 years out. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if you start today. So how can we bring expertise and some of the kind of subspecialty and specialty care to those regional hospitals so that the desire and need for transfer is significantly less. And we've used the telehealth program that we started during the Ukraine kind of escalation of the Ukraine war in 2022 to bring surgical subspecialists and surgical specialists to those um, general medical officers that are working in the regional hospitals so that their ability to take care of more complicated, more complex patients is bolstered. And honestly, a lot of these surgeons are already trained on how to do a lot of these procedures. They just felt like they weren't backed up. They felt like right. they got into trouble. There was no one to call. And so this was kind of the red panic button that you put in the room, either yep. in the operating room or in their office. And um, we've noticed that the transfer rate has gone down dramatically. And, and you know, we're in the process of measuring that and, 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 uh, and scaling it. I think it's another example of where adopting technology that we already knew existed, that we knew worked for years, and just being able to bring it to um, the problems and focus it on these specific problems is really exciting. That's fantastic. And um, if you don't mind, last question, and we'll just yeah. stay... Uh, on the theme of the developing world. So, yeah. so one of the, I think, bitter ironies of climate change as it relates to the developing world is the countries that have least benefited from the carbon economy are now the ones that are going to have the most, the disproportionate impact of the ill effects of climate change. That's just the reality. Yeah. Whether it's flooding, whether it's air quality, water quality, refugees, displacement, heat, et cetera, extreme heat. Um, you've traveled a lot to these countries. Um, have an intimate knowledge of obviously the the medical infrastructure and and the medical community there. Are these countries preparing for those eventualities? What should they be thinking? What are you thinking about that? Yeah, I I think they are to the extent that they can. Um, You know, I I actually have been fortunate to meet uh, the prime minister of Barbados, Mia Motley, who's been very vocal on this subject. Um, And I think, you know, her, her take on this is, is, um, is pretty, is pretty accurate. The countries that are that are in in the way of climate change that are going to be affected by this need assistance from the countries that have greatly benefited, as you put, from the yep. carbon economy. Yep. Um, whether that's cash, whether that's technology transfer, um, it's it's you know it's still there's there's kind of a multimodal kind of response that could occur. We've been working with the government of Barbados. Um, you know they have traditionally been outside of the hurricane belt. You know, they, they've kind of boasted that it was one of their tourism attractions is that they, they're not in the hurricane belt and they've been hit by two this year. Didn't they? It was really, really close this year, I think. Yeah, and right? they, they went track and yeah, and they got hit uh, a year or two ago by another hurricane. And so they you know that they are the hurricane belt is changing because of climate change. Yeah. And, and so they're starting to think about, you know, when they're building new facilities and new hospitals, where you build them, how you build them. Do you create big, big structures that have all of the services in it? Do you create light structures that are around? And there are there are ways to mitigate it. But I do agree with the prime minister that the global north and the, you know, the high income countries that have benefited from this carbon economy and have to a large extent used the carbon um, that is now in our air um, have a responsibility to help these smaller countries that are in that kind of nascent stage where they're about to, you know, cross into high middle income, high income status. That um, to make sure that they're not thwarted in doing that, and it, it's not 
it's not selfless of us to do that. There's actually a benefit. I was just going to say the same. Yeah. Like them, their country's thriving makes our country more secure, more safe, um, less impacted by healthcare um, or or migration. And so, you know, I think that the the thing that I've seen change recently, and I, you know, we saw it at, at the World Economic Forum in, in January, is this idea of a scarcity mindset really needs to go away. The idea that we don't have the tools, equipment, and resources to solve our problems is really a fallacy. And I think that if if that's the adoption that occurs in 2023 going into 2024, that would be an exciting um, change in mentality. And that is a great way to put a bow on the on the episode. So, Dr. Eric, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and also, more importantly, thank you so much for the time uh, that you give to the communities that need it. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, this is Keith Zackheim. And thanks for listening to this episode of Raising Your Antenna. Raising Your Antenna is a podcast that spotlights the entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, regulators, and legislators who are leading our country's efforts to realize a sustainable planet and an environmentally just future. As we transition from the age of climate innovation to the age of climate tech adoption, I interview the people who are innovating, ideating, investing, legislating, and newsmaking the climate tech revolution. I always learn something from these conversations, and I hope you will as well. Raising Your Antenna is sponsored by Antenna Group, the nation's leading climate technology-focused agency since 2005. Antenna has been telling the sustainable stories that shaped and elevated the national conversation about climate. Now 200 public relations and marketing professionals strong. With offices around the world, Antenna is partnering with companies to tell their age of adoption stories, namely how organizations representing all sectors of the economy are adopting sustainable technologies and best practices to transform their businesses.